Beginning in verse 22 down to verse 41, um, it's a great Sunday. It's a great Sunday. Uh, every Sunday is good. Uh, this is a great one as we gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the tomb could not hold him, that the grave had to give his body up, and that he has risen and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father as we speak. And so we have access to him, and he intercedes for us. And that is good news. That is good news. A couple of you think it is. And so... Uh, <laughs> We, we are in Acts chapter 2 this morning, um, and as we are, so give you a little context of where the book of Acts sits in the larger picture of the, of the Bible. Uh, the book of Acts comes after Jesus' earthly ministry, after he's been crucified, after he's been resurrected, after um, it begins with his ascension up into heaven, and then it continues to tell the story of the church as it unfolds in that first generation of Christ followers in the, in the Mediterranean region. And so we find in the book of Acts, uh, the very first sermon preached in the kind of the Christian era uh, by someone other than Jesus is preached by a dude named Peter who had followed Jesus all of his earthly ministry. Um, and Peter preaches this sermon in response to accusations at all the crazy stuff that was, they saw going on around them as the Holy Spirit of God gets poured out upon Jesus' followers. And they, they're, 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 they're preaching the gospel and people are, are, are hearing the gospel in their own languages, in their own native tongues, even though you've got people who are gathered there to hear who've come from all across uh, the, the ancient Near East. And so they got people who are coming with all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of languages, and they're hearing the gospel, and people are saying, man, this is crazy. They're speaking in all these kinds of tongues. They must be drunk. And Peter says, listen, it's not that we're drunk. It's only like the third hour of the day, right? It's early in the morning, um, but here's what's going on. And in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, he begins to unfold for us what they're seeing, and he tells them why they're seeing what they're seeing. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to skip down into verse 22 is where we're going to pick up and read together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you uh, behind me as we read. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For, verse 25, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Oftentimes, we may find ourselves in situations or circumstances where what we're seeing with our eyes, we need someone to help us understand what it means. Uh, I remember when my second, our second child, Karen and our second child was born, Sarah. Um, she was born, uh, her birthday's coming up, April 7th. Um, 2011. She'll be five years old here in a couple of days. Uh, but whenever she was born, um, from the moment that she came out of the womb, I was there in the delivery room um, with my wife, and she came out of the womb, and there she is in all of her glory. Um, and she is, you know, just as naked as can be. Um, and we, I, the doctors give me the scissors to cut the cord, and I cut the cord, and then they whisk her off onto the table, and they begin to assess her and make sure everything was going okay. They clean out her mouth and slap her behind so she could cry, uh, which, she's, which she's been doing pretty much ever since. Um, and so uh, I, I remember standing over the table watching um, as the, the doctors and the nurses began to assess her, and I noticed something about her skull. As I began to look and examine more closely, and the nurse began to look and examine more closely, um, you know, there, there's, there's things that happen to baby skulls when they get squeezed through those areas, um, when they come out naturally, um, and so that misshapes their head, but it typically comes back into its normal shape relatively quickly um, as, the, as, the, as the child begins to experience life in this world. And so we weren't too concerned about it as go, go, going to bed that evening, but we had left her in the nursery that night to get some rest, and the doctor came in, the, the hospitalist, the pediatrician came in early that next morning and sat beside our bed and told us that they had taken her to the NICU overnight. Um, because they were concerned about the shape of her skull and some things that they were seeing and the things that they were observing. And so she sat there next to our bedside that morning after we had delivered, or my, I say we, my wife had delivered our child, our daughter, to listen to the hospitalist tell us and interpret for us what we were seeing, what we were seeing and, and kind of what the, the, the path would look like for us and the things that would probably need to be done for her treatment because what we saw with our eyes, we, we, could, we could see something was, was going on, but we couldn't necessarily make out what was happening. We needed someone else with a little bit more knowledge, with a little bit more experience to interpret for us what we were observing, what was unfolding for us. And listen, all of us find ourselves in those kinds of positions and circumstances and situations in life, don't we? At times we find ourselves looking at something and we go, I can't quite make sense of that. I need some, some, someone with a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more information to interpret that for me. Physicians do it all the time for us. 
Most of the time they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. But physicians, radiologists, when they look at x-rays, they're interpreting what you see on that sheet, this picture that was taken of the insides of your body. When they look at CAT scans or MRIs or or traditional x-rays, they're looking at that information that you can see a picture of and they're interpreting for you based on their training, their skill, their experience, what you're seeing. Right? You see it all the time. We all find ourselves in those kinds of positions where you see something, but you need someone else with a little more info to interpret it for you. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here on the day of Pentecost. Everyone who's gathered, either they knew someone who had seen what had transpired in Jerusalem some 40 days before, they had seen what had taken place several weeks ago, uh, and they, they, maybe either they saw it with their own eyes or someone else that they knew had reported to them about what had taken place there in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up to give a little perspective to those who are gathered there at the day of Pentecost as they've come to celebrate. And he says, this is what you're seeing. He interprets for them and gives them the information that they need to understand what had just unfolded weeks before. That's what Peter does at the day of Pentecost. And when he, as, as he does, I find it incredibly interesting that what Peter does at, at Pentecost when he stands to preach, right? And here's, here's kind of my one point. There's some things that will support it. But here's kind of my one point, right? The big idea this morning. Some of you are just, your mind's blown right now. He's only got one point. My one point, my one big idea is this is what you see in this text. When Peter stands to preach on the day of Pentecost to put some perspective to everything that had transpired through Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, when Peter stands up to preach, he, 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 he keeps pointing back to things that are objectively observable, historical realities. And he puts some interpretation to them. Now, who better to interpret for us what had just taken place other than Peter, who was well-versed in the Old Testament. He was immersed, in, immersed into Jesus' inner circle. He saw Jesus as he taught. He saw Jesus as he healed. He saw Jesus as he ministered to the crowds. He was with Jesus at his betrayal. He was with Jesus at his trial. Denied Jesus at his trial. Was ultimately there observing what was taking place as the cross unfolded ran away, and Jesus came and found him after his resurrection, restores him on a beach, and tells him, Peter, feed my sheep. Who better to interpret for us everything that had just unfolded other than this guy? And that's exactly what he does. But as he does, and here's the big idea, as he does, and some of you, God has brought you here this morning to see this. You are here today to see this. And I pray that you would. But here's the big idea. It's this, the truthfulness of Christianity is not measured by its subjective results, but by its objective correspondence to reality. Let me say that again, it's a mouthful. (laughs) That's why it's only one point. The truthfulness of Christianity is not measured by its subjective results, but by its objective correspondence to reality. Let me break it down for you this way. What Peter does at the day of Pentecost is very different from what we do most of the time whenever we gather in churches on Easter Sunday to talk about Jesus. Lots of times in churches across our community, even churches on our continent and churches on other continents and in other countries, whenever they gather together on Easter Sunday, there is this this compelling need to not 
Just rejoice in the resurrection of Christ and celebrate the resurrection of Christ and proclaim that Christ is risen. But what many, many folks do whenever they gather together on Easter Sunday morning is they're not rejoicing in and proclaiming Christ is raised, but what they're doing is recommending Jesus and promoting him by saying, look at what he does in people's lives. Look at what he does. Look what he did for these folks, right? And they tell story after story after story after story of what God has done in people's lives. But that's not exactly what Peter does when he stands up on the day of Pentecost. He didn't stand up and go, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what God did in my life. He didn't say, and I was fishing one day and I was, we, we, we weren't catching a thing and Jesus showed up, told us to throw the nets on the other side of the boat and we hauled in this massive, massive catch. So much that the boats, the nets were breaking, the boats were sinking, could barely get it to the shore. He didn't do that on the day of Pentecost when he stands up to preach. He didn't tell his story. He didn't talk about subjective results in his life. Right? Peter doesn't stand up on the day of Pentecost and say, hey, here's a real touching story about what I've seen God do in my life. He didn't stand up and say, here's, man, this one's gonna get you, right? How God put my marriage back together. He didn't stand up and say that on, 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 at Pentecost. He didn't stand up and say, here's a really great tearjerker about how God brought my son or my daughter back around and that a strange relationship got reconciled and now we're like best buddies and we hang out and play golf or drink tea all day, every day because none of us work, but God's just showered down manna from heaven and so we're just living on that. But he doesn't get up and say, hey, here's a really inspiring story about how I was broke and God got me this new job. And so now that I have this new job, all these things, it's like a chain of events unfolded and all these things took place. He doesn't do that. Peter doesn't get up and say, I was in a really dark and difficult place, but a light came on at the end of the tunnel for me. And since then, everything's been so good. Let me tell you about what God has done in my life. He doesn't stand up and say, hey, listen, it was Friday, right, in my life. And I, I didn't had a job. I was looking for a job. But then Sunday came and I got a job. <laughs> he doesn't stand up and say, it was Friday and I didn't have a house. There was no roof over my head. But then Sunday came. Right now I've got 2,700 square feet. And I got stainless steel appliances. And I got right, granite countertops. He doesn't stand up and say, it was Friday and I didn't have any hope for my marriage. But Sunday came and my husband came back or my wife came back and we reconciled. And now we've been married 15 years with 17 kids. And you do the math, right? Um, a few twins and triplets in there. But he doesn't say those kinds of things here at Pentecost. He didn't say it was Friday and I didn't have the money to pay my bills, but Sunday came. He didn't say it was Friday and I was driving a beater, but now I got a beamer out in, the, out in the driveway. That's not what he says when he stands up. He doesn't say, let me tell you my personal testimony. Now listen, it's not wrong. It is not wrong to celebrate and testify to, as the psalmist says, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's not wrong to do that. But that's not what Peter does. And here's why. Because the truthfulness of Christianity is not measured by its subjective results, but by its correspondence to objective reality. It's perhaps the only religion on the face of the earth that is measured that way by its correspondence to objective reality. And let me tell you the difference that that makes. And we're going to continue to unfold this here in a moment. I'll tell you the difference that that makes. It makes a huge difference. 
If you're here this morning and you've, maybe, you've, maybe you've been in, in churches before in your life, maybe you're just coming back to the church, I don't know where you are right now. But if you're here this morning, perhaps some of you are coming back to the church because things have gotten so out of control in your life that you think, if I come back to Jesus, everything will come back together. Everything, it, it, it's, that's what God's promised to happen, right? It's somewhere in the Bible. I'm gonna flip through and find that place where it says, if I come back to Jesus, he's gonna put everything back together here and now, today, in this life. But it's hard to find those promises in the Bible. It'd be really stretched to find those kinds of things because not everyone whom God saves, not everyone whom God saves from Satan, the great enemy who is prowling like a lion to devour them, not everyone whom God saves from the consequences and the penalty of their sin, which is eternal separation from God. Not everyone whom God saves from death. So that he pro- what he does promise to do is to raise you from the dead and you spend eternity in glory gazing upon Jesus for the rest of the ages. That's what he does promise. But not everyone whom God saves from Satan's sin and death gets their marriages put back together. Do you know that? Not everyone whom God saves from Satan's sin and death gets a raise or gets a new car or gets a house or gets reconciliation with their kids or stays in their home or finds a spouse if you're single. Not everyone whom God saves from Satan's sin and death gets all of those subjective results coming together in their life. Not everyone. In fact, there are some who, because of their faith in Jesus and because of them stepping out on faith to follow where he leads, they've lost some of those things in their life. They've lost some of those things. I had a buddy who went up to the mission field into South America and he served there faithfully for several years. And things didn't go as he had planned for them to go. Right? The labor was hard. The ground was hard and he received very little support from those who were there on the field with him and those who were back home who were sending him out. And so when he returned home, when he returned home, he came back. And he came back just broken after all the pain that he'd experienced on the mission field. Here's a guy that you think, man, sign me up for working for Jesus. Things are going to be good. And he comes back home and he said, man, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And he said, if I was not convinced 100% of the objective reality of who God is, who Christ is, what he has done, that he has risen, he's ascended, he is reigning, and he is returning, I would be at a bar or a strip club right now trying to numb my pain. Not everyone whom God saves from Satan's sin and death has that story that unfolds in this life that makes you look at it and go, man, I wish I could be like them. Some of them you look at it and go, don't sign me up for that. So it's so vital that you see that it's the, the truthfulness. It isn't measured by the subjective results, but by objective reality. Because listen, what happens? And I've known people who have said yes to Jesus and no to sin, who've come to faith in Christ whom God has saved. And that was a part of the dissolving of their marriage because their husband or their wife said, no thanks, don't sign me up for that. So what happens whenever you come to faith in Christ and God is gracious to save you and your income drops by 50% because you can't do business the way that you used to do business? What happens 
when you're marched out onto a beach in North Africa in an orange jumpsuit and beheaded by someone in a black hoodie with a small knife. What happens when God removes your dream home from you in order to root out your love for possessions and replace it with a deep affection for Christ? What happens then? Do you still cling to him? See, if you said yes to the results that you believed that somebody promised you Jesus was going to provide for you and bringing everything together so that you would have that life of that person who was on that video screen that told you that story about how when they came to Jesus, everything all of a sudden magically just kind of turned into bliss. What happens when your story doesn't end that way in this life? It will in the life to come, but in this life, we still cling to him then. If you measure the truthfulness of Christianity based on subjective results, man, it, it, what you will do in those moments is you'll say, I let go. I can't do this. I can't do this. That's why when Peter gets up at Pentecost, he didn't say, let me tell you, let me tell you all the good things, everything that's happened, that's all these results of me coming to faith in Jesus and how everything is just incredible in my life. He gets up and he says, let me report to you some facts and tell you what they mean. Because the truthfulness of Christianity is measured by its objective reality, not by its subjective results. What are some of those things that Peter reports? Look at what he says in verse 22. Peter says that Jesus' ministry was God's endorsement of his identity. Jesus' ministry was God's stamp of approval, his confirmation, his endorsement of Jesus' identity. Peter says at the day of Pentecost, he says, listen, men of, men of Israel, I want you to understand something. Jesus, who was attested by God, who was endorsed by God through signs and wonders and miracles, through all these things that he did, that was, that was God placing his stamp of approval, his endorsement on him as his son, as he did all these amazing things in Jesus' day and time. Even if you look at John's gospel, these spectacular works were by which God was confirming Jesus' legitimacy. He was showing him to be legit. And so you see, even in John's gospel, there's seven signs, most scholars would say, that move throughout John's gospel that point to the divinity of Jesus, who he was. And I say, from, from the turning of water into wine in John chapter 2 to the healing of the royal official's son in John chapter 4 to the healing of the paralytic in Bethesda in John chapter 5 to the feeding of the 5,000 men, not including women and children in John chapter 6 to Jesus walking on the water and stilling the storm in John chapter 6 as well to him healing a man born blind in John chapter 9 and to the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Not to recount all the other things that Jesus does throughout his earthly life and ministry. In fact, John says he did so much at the end of John's gospel. He did so much that if we were to write it all down, there's not enough books in the world that could contain everything that Jesus did to recount every story. And through that, God was placing his stamp on Jesus. This, this is my son. This is the Messiah. This is the Lord. That's why many times whenever he does these things, the disciples look at each other, scratch their head and go, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? So God was placing his endorsement on Jesus through his ministry. Second of all, Jesus' death, Peter says, was the fulfillment of God's plan. 
in verses 22 and 23, he looks at those who are gathered there that day, who had perhaps been gathered there at the crucifixion, some who have come into town since. But he looks at them and he says, this Jesus, the one whom God has endorsed, the one whom God has confirmed, the one whom God has received, this Jesus you rejected. This Jesus you crucified. This Jesus you put to death. But he doesn't say that Jesus' death was like God's fourth down Hail Mary pass, right? That he comes to the end of Jesus' life and he goes, he looks at the spirit up in heaven who's still there. As he, well, he's, he's working through Jesus' ministry, but before he's poured out upon the earth, upon all of us, they, they go up there and they're like, man, okay, we, we didn't really see this one coming. <laughs> what are we gonna do now? I know I know, we can deliver him over to be killed. No, he says this was God's predetermined plan that these lawless men that would conspire together, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, and the Jewish people, and the Romans, they would conspire together to put the Son of God, whom God had endorsed, confirmed, and received, to reject, crucify, and kill him, and to put him to death. And it wasn't God's fourth down Hail Mary pass with three seconds on the clock going, I hope we make it to the end zone. And it wasn't his kind of last second buzzer beater shot at the end of the fourth quarter from half court. It wasn't any of that. It was what God had determined to do before the foundations of the world, as John sees in Revelation. From the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain, that he was put to death. It was God's plan A, not his plan B, not his plan C, not his plan D, his plan A from the very beginning. This is what Peter is saying. So Jesus' death was the fulfillment of God's plan. But then finally, what I want you to see of what Peter reports, and this is, where we gather, this is why we're here. If this hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ is not raised, then you're all fools. <laughs> There's no reason to gather and sing. There's no reason to gather and, and t- take the Lord's table. There's no reason to gather and listen to the preaching of God's words. There's no reason to give your life to Jesus, but just go out and live however you want to live. There's no reason for this unless this has taken place historically, verifiably, objectively. And he says that Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of prophecy. In verse verse 24, in verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen, that word pangs there in verse 24 is a word that literally refers to the the pain associated with childbirth. Now, I've never delivered a child myself. If I had, I'd, I'd have a lot more money right now because it's kind of an anomaly <laughs> of science. Never delivered a child myself. I have passed some kidney stones, um, which is probably more information than you want. Um, but, but from what I've seen of the pains of childbirth, they're rather intense. I've seen it twice. The first one with my wife, as she labored at home for three days, literally Saturday to Monday. We went to the hospital once. They said, listen, you can either stay here and pay us a bunch of money to sit in this room until you actually make some progress or you can go home and labor. So we decided to go home and labor. She decided to go home and labor. I was just like, yes, honey, whatever you want to do. And so we went home and she labored from Saturday afternoon through Sunday, Sunday afternoon and evening, Sunday night. We're up at 4 a.m. walking the neighborhood trying to get this baby to come out. Finally, Sunday around noon, she calls the doctor, or Monday around noon, she calls the doctor and he says, yes, come on in. It was actually very fitting. It was Labor Day. Um, <laughs> it's like a sign. And so we, we get in the car, we drive to the hospital and the whole way there, like every bump that we're hitting, she's looking at me and, and 
I don't know, I don't, I don't want to know what she was thinking, but I could see it in her eyes. They're like, like lasers that just cut right through someone. Um, because every time we'd hit a bump, it would jolt, and she would just kind of menace, and then she'd look at me, and we'd keep driving. So we get to the hospital. They put her in a wheelchair, wheel her in, get her up on the bed, and the whole, before they could get like the, the, the good juice in her back, um, she's laying there, and I'm holding her hand. I'm, come on, baby, you can do this, you can do this. I'm like, I don't even want to tell you what she said, but we're, I'm laying there telling her, like, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be here with you. And so um, I realized in that moment, kind of stepping back, objectively looking at her, I go, I think she's in a little bit of pain. <laughs> a little bit, right? But, but what, was, what was going on in her body was those pangs of childbirth, the contractions that she was having as her muscles came together to contract, what were they doing? They were producing something, weren't they? They were beginning to push this child out of her womb. And so the pangs of childbirth are not, not um, they're, they're, they're productive. They're productive. They're not idle. They, they, they were pushing out this, this, this child that was in her belly, had been growing and developing and, and incubating in there. And every woman who's ever delivered a child naturally understands that experience. It was, it was pushing it out. The pain is something that you want, right? Because until that pain comes, that baby's just going to be riding in there, hanging out. It was the pangs. They were productive. And that word is the exact same word that Peter uses here to describe the resurrection when he says that what God did is he loosed, he untied the pangs of death. And in the same way that a mother's womb cannot hold a child when it's grown, grown to full term and that clock that God has hardwired into them clicks. It's like it's, t- it's go time, right? And it's time to come out and the pangs begin and they begin to push. And that child comes out in the same way that a mother's womb cannot hold a full term child. Peter says the grave could not hold the son of God couldn't hold him. He was resurrected. And in so being, it was the fulfillment of prophecy, Peter says. It's like Peter's thinking about Psalm 16 here in the text. And he's thinking back on the fact that David wrote that psalm. Hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever dies. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever rises. So David is prophesying about something that would take place through one who was in his lineage, in his genealogy. And he's thinking about Psalm 16 and about how David says, he has not allowed my soul to rest in Hades or my flesh to see corruption. In other words, he hasn't allowed me to stay in the place of the dead and deteriorate. And it's like Peter's thinking about Psalm 16 and he's scratching his head a little bit because he's like, we all know. In fact, he goes on further in the, in the sermon to say, listen, brothers, We all know that David died. David was buried. David's body is still in the tomb and it's still deteriorating. Whatever's left of his bones is still wasting away there in the tomb. So what he's writing about is not his own experience, but the experience of another, one who would come after him. And Peter's like, all of a sudden, the light goes off for Peter. Ding, 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 ding. He's writing about Jesus. So that when Peter says, that God unties the pangs of death and that Jesus steps forth from the grave because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The reason it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by it is because God had promised to raise him from the dead. The reason it wasn't possible was because of God's promise. 
Now, some of you at this point right now, you're thinking, man, you take this resurrection stuff pretty seriously, right? <laughs> man, that's good for you. I'm going to know about for me. I'm a little bit of a cynic when it comes to these kinds of things. And so man, I'm glad you believe so strongly in that. So let me, as we, as we land the plane this morning, let me, let me just share with you a little bit why I take this so seriously and why I believe this is verifiable, objective, historical reportage and not just something to be spiritualized in our lives. And it's why Christianity is measured by its objective correspondence to reality and not its subjective results. Listen, the, the, the objective historical evidence for what took place there on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago is so strong so strong, both in, 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 in church historians and in secular historians, that there have been literally forests cut down over the centuries to garner the paper needed to write and spill ink on, to write the books to give alternative explanations to what happened 2,000 years ago in that tomb. Several of them, the most popular ones go like this. There are some who propose that, that when the disciples and the ladies showed up, they went to the wrong grave. They got it wrong. They showed up to the wrong spot. It's not actually where they laid Jesus. But if that's the case, do you really think that the subsequent visitors to the tomb wouldn't have said, man, listen, you guys missed it. That's not where we laid him. We laid him over there, not on that side of the rock, on this side of the rock, right? Not on that side of the stream, on this side of the stream. You guys, you guys got it all jacked up. Like if subsequent visitors would have come to the grave, they would have said that. Or if the authorities who wanted to squash the movement of Christianity as it began to rise amongst the people in the Roman Empire, they could have said, hey, you guys are going to the wrong place, man. You got the wrong holy site. Look, it's over here. There's a body still in there wrapped in clothes. So it doesn't hold weight. Some would say that Jesus didn't really die. That's an interesting one. If he didn't really die then do you really think that a man who had his flesh stripped from his back, a crown of thorns pierced his brow, nails driven through his hands and feet, his side pierced, and his myocardial sac around his heart punctured so that blood and water runs out, could have rolled away the very large stone at the mouth of his grave and survive without seeking any kind of medical attention? And if he had, don't you think someone would have seen him in that state kind of writhing around in pain as he tried to find some place to lay his head? and bandage his wounds. And when they did, they wouldn't have mistaken him for someone who has just been resurrected from the grave and his body's been, 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 been glorified, but he would look like a beaten, bloody criminal. In addition, some have said the disciples took the body. It's an interesting one as well, because if so, do you really think they would have kept up the hoax whenever their blood started to spill on account of this? I mean, don't you... Th- <laughs> Don't you think if they were just trying to pull off the greatest hoax in human history, that whenever they began to be beaten, whenever they began to be imprisoned, whenever they began to be martyred for their faith, that had been like, man, we were just playing. I don't know. Or finally, that the authorities took the body and hid it. And if that's the case, wouldn't they, wouldn't they have produced it? As Christianity began to swell, the Jewish religious leaders produced it to squash those who were claiming Christ to be the Messiah or creating all this turmoil in the Roman Empire. The Romans would have produced it. There's really no other plausible explanation for what took place there in that tomb 2,000 years ago other than the fact that God loosed the pangs of death and Jesus walked out of the grave glorified. 
In fact, one of the, I'm going to close with this. One of the, the, the most, most compelling pieces of evidence for me about the resurrection is the way the apostles themselves talk about it. Because Peter says in verse 32 that God, this Jesus, God raised up. And of this, he says, we are all witnesses. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to say, listen, if you don't believe me when I talk to you about the resurrection, go ask the 500 people that he appeared to at one time. Some of those have died, but there are many of them who are still awake, who are still, who are still living. Like, listen, if you're trying to make something up, if you're trying to pull off a scam or a hoax, right, what would you do? You'd say, man, we were out in the woods. There was three of us out there. We were hanging out and we were just kind of around the campfire and then the, the trees kind of pulled their, their, their branches back and this God just ascended, Jesus just ascended down into this very secluded wooded spot that no one else could see, but we were there and we saw him. We saw him and then he hung out with us and we ate some fish and then he told us all these things that we needed to go and do and start these churches and then he rose back up and the trees collapsed and no one else has ever seen him. Like if you were trying to make that up, that's the kind of story that you would tell. You wouldn't say, hey, listen, if you don't believe me, go two blocks down, take a right, the, the, the house with the blue door on it, knock on his door, and then Tim will come out and tell you he saw it too. Or go ask Julie. Go ask any of these people who saw him because they saw it too. If you're living in a day and time of firsthand account eyewitnesses, <laughs> And you say, go ask them. That's pretty compelling. You're not trying to hide it, hide it in the trees off on the hillside, but you're saying, no, it, it happened right here in front of their, my eyes, in front of their eyes, and in front of their eyes. And if you don't believe me, go ask them. The truthfulness of Christianity is not measured by its subjective results, but it's measured by its correspondence to objective reality. And this, listen church, this is what cut them to the heart in verse 37. It wasn't Peter got up and said, hey, my marriage was on the rocks and now it's amazing. It wasn't that he got up and said, I didn't have a job, but now I'm working, earning six figures. It's not that he, he got up and said, hey, my, my child hated me and now we're reconciled and we hang out all, to, all the time. He didn't get up and say any of those things and then they were cut to the heart. He got up and said, God confirmed Jesus through his ministry and placed a stamp on him of legitimacy for his identity through the signs and wonders that he did. God received him, but you rejected him and killed him according to God's plan. But the prophecy that God had given to David hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born and lived has come to pass in the fact that God raised him from the grave. And this objective reality is what sliced the hearts of his hearers. So much so, but the text tells us there was 3,000 who were saved that day. And they were cut so deeply that they said to the, the apostles, what do we do? And two things he says. What does he say? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit. Repent, turn away from saying yes to sin and say yes to Jesus. Say no to sin and yes to Jesus to turn from heading in one direction and head in the other. And listen, Peter's talking to the most moral religious people on the face of the earth here. And so some of you are like, man, I don't have anything to repent of. I'm a pretty good dude. I haven't done anything that gets me even remotely close to imprisonment. 
even remotely. But Peter's talking to the most moral and religious people who've ever lived on the face of the earth. And he says, repent. What are they repenting from? Their rejection of Jesus and their attempt to do it themselves. In other words, if I'm good enough, God has to accept me. If I'm moral enough, God has to accept me. What you need to see, what they needed to see, that the heart of Christianity was not good morality, but a gracious Messiah who has come to rescue those who cannot rescue themselves. So turn from trying to do it yourself and give up your control and trust in and treasure Jesus. And then he says, be baptized. In other words, come down publicly and say, I'm saying yes to Jesus in front of all you for all you folks, right? I'm saying yes to Jesus and notice sin. And Peter says, if, if, when you turn from sin and turn to trust and treasure in Jesus, there is forgiveness and cleansing and the Holy Spirit, you receive him. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, he empowers you to continue to say yes to Jesus, whether or not your marriage ever gets put back together and whether or not you ever get that job that you wanted and whether or not your son ever comes back around and whether or not you ever get your dream home. Has that happened for you? Has there ever been a time where you said, I repent, I turn. You've been cut to the heart by the truth of Jesus and you turn from sin and you trust in and treasure him. This morning, we've got a couple of men who are gonna come and serve the Lord's table to us. Upon Jesus' last meal with his followers, he passes the bread around, passes the cup around, breaks the bread, says, this is my body that was broken for you. When you take it, do it in remembrance of me. He takes the cup. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And there's some of you in the room here this morning who are Christians, and God has been gracious to save you. And this morning, I want to invite you to the table as we take of the Lord's Supper together, as we take of communion together. The band's gonna come now. They're gonna begin to receive it as they come and make their way up onto the stage to lead us in song as we take it together. But as they do, if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, if there's been a point in your life where you've repented of your sin and you've come to trust in and treasure Jesus, I wanna invite you to come to the table. You can come down the middle aisles and make your way back down around the outside so we all are kind of moving in an orderly fashion and we don't have anybody tackling each other, each other in the middle. I wanna invite you to come to the table if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never repented of sin and come to place your faith and trust in Jesus, then here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to meet me in the back of the room this morning. I'd love to visit with you about what that looks like. And if you're not, you, don't, you don't want to do that this morning, there's a connection card on your seat if you will fill that out and you will check I'd like to speak with a pastor about what it means to say no to sin and yes to Jesus, I can guarantee you by the, the, the time the day is over, you'll have an email in your inbox trying to set up a time with you to sit down face-to-face and talk through what that looks like for you. Because so we want to help you take that step if you sense God has drawn you. So this morning, I ask everyone to move and go somewhere. So either move and come receive the table or come find Myself, Stanley's back there as well. I know he'd love to visit with you about that too. Let me talk to you about what it means to say no to sin and yes to Jesus and have him as your savior. If God has cut you to the heart, would you pray with me? Father, we come today. Thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your kindness and compassion without which we would be hopeless and helpless. 
Father, we are not just a, a lot of good people who are trying to do a lot of good things, hoping one day that you might accept us. But God, we are a people as your church who are people of the risen Christ, a people whose lives have been covered by the blood that he shed, a people whose lives have been empowered by the Holy Spirit who's come to reside in us because he has been resurrected and he has poured out the Spirit so that no matter whether, whether or not we ever see the subjective results that somebody promised us in a video or in a testimony, whether we ever see subjective results like that in our lives, we'll cling to Jesus because he's true. Because he's true. Give us grace now, Father, to move as you call and compel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to the table this morning.